Good morning to everyone. Take God's word and turn with me, please, to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. Yes, you heard me correctly. Nahum. Tucked away somewhere in the Old Testament. I guarantee you, you look hard and you will find it. Who was Nahum? Uh, We don't really know. (laughs) A prophet. We know that much. His name means comfort, and that's about the extent of it. He is a bit of an enigma, a mysterious figure uh, when it comes to God's revelation in Scripture, and uh, you can search high and low for more information, and I guarantee it, you will not find it. A prophet whose name is, means comfort. When did he live? When did he minister? Uh, When did he prophesy? There are a couple of historical markers in the book, and these markers indicate, make clear for us, that Nahum lived more or less in the mid-7th century. So somewhere around 650, 640, 630 BC is when Nahum ministered and prophesied. What did he prophesy, or what did he write, or more to the point, why did he write? I can sum it up as follows. Uh, His purpose, his aim in writing is to encourage, comfort God's people with a vision of Nineveh's impending destruction. Did you just hear what I said? His aim is to encourage Make God's people feel good. His aim is to comfort the people of God with a vision of the impending judgment, destruction, absolute desolation of the city of Nineveh. Why are we studying this book? Um, We know next to nothing about Nahum. We're talking about a man who lived 26, 2700 years ago. And the three chapters, the entire book, has to do with uh, a city called Nineveh. It's Mosul, right? Mosul, modern day Iraq. Uh, Nineveh, centuries ago. I know nothing about it. Uh, how could this book be of any relevance to us? Uh, there are 66 books in the Bible. Why, why has Stephen landed here? I got a number of reasons why we've landed landed here. I'm gonna I'm gonna restrict my list to four. I'll start with the least important and end with the most important. Here's the first reason, again, least important reason why we are studying the book of Nahum. I've never preached on Nahum. That's the first reason. <laughs> there you go. I told you it's the least important. And uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago, as uh, just sort of planning ahead. I, um, I was thinking it would be, maybe I should preach on something I would not choose to preach on. There's an interesting thought. And it came down to Lamentations or Nahum. You can thank me. We're studying Nahum and not the book of Lamentations. So there's one reason I, I wanted to preach on something I never preached on and something I would not choose to preach on. Second reason is this, I'm going to hazard a guess that no one here has ever heard a sermon series on the book of Nahum. 
Any, one or two hands? Has anybody ever heard a sermon? One hand has gone up, maybe two. Never heard a sermon series on the book of Nahum. What does that mean? It's a closed book. Uh, the pages just started, stopped ruffling just a few minutes ago. Some of you are desperately trying to find it. Not even convinced it was in there. It's in there. So it's not only that we've never heard a sermon series on the book. Many of us, it is terra incognita. Unknown territory. We've never been there. Maybe read it once in a while in our annual reading plan, but certainly never studied it. No clue what the message of this book is and certainly no clue as to how to take it to heart. We believe all Scripture is profitable. The book of Nahum, therefore, is what? Profitable. Third reason is this. It has been a long time since we at GCC have heard from a minor prophet. It's been a long time. I think it's been over four years. We have, I have studied with you the book of Habakkuk, Haggai, Malachi, I don't think any other minor prophets, but it has been close to four years. It is time for us to hear from a minor prophet, this literary genre, the prophetic voice, and what the Spirit of God intends for the people of God to hear and to learn through these prophets who lived centuries ago. Here's the fourth reason. Remember, from the least important to the most important, we're studying the book of Nahum. Because he declares several essential truths concerning God, which we need to hear, but don't want to hear. There you have it. Nahum declares, makes plain, several essential, fundamental, absolutely important, non-negotiable truths concerning the Almighty. We need to hear them. But deep down inside, we do not want to hear them. We're going to see today that God is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. Get your mind around that one, folks. His name is Jealous. We're going to see that the Lord is a universal judge as we proceed in the book, and we are going to behold, thirdly, that he is a terrible, a terrible, frightening avenger. Um, that's how you scatter a crowd, folks, right there. That's not very seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive. This is not going to make us feel good. It's not intended to make us feel good. It is intended to reveal to us God in the fullness of his splendor and his majesty, so that we really apprehend the one whom we claim to belong to, and not by apprehending him, therefore worship him according to the fullness of his glory. And so we begin today with the Lord, a jealous God. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous. Right to the chase. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now begin with me back in verse 2 and just note, just note, take a mental note of the terms. Avenging. You see it there in the second verse? It's used twice. And then vengeance, right at the end of verse 2. Wrathful, the middle of verse 2. And again at the end of verse 2, keeps wrath. Into verse 3, right at the outset, anger. Down to verse 6, who can stand before his? Indignation. Still in verse 6, who can endure the heat of his anger? One more time, his wrath is poured out like fire. And so a cursory glance of these verses, what constitute really a poem in the Hebrew, a cursory glance uh, reveals uh, quite plainly that the principal theme in this text is what? It is the anger of God. It is the wrath of God. Or the third term that is used, the indignation of God. Now, I realize, and I am sure that most of us realize, that man recoils at this very notion. I'm sure most of us realize that the majority of professing believers in this land recoil at such a notion that God is angry. That is not the Christianity that is practiced by the multitudes in this country. The Christianity that is practiced by the majority of professing believers in this country is all about feeling good, feeling happy, feeling secure, and feeling at peace. And accordingly, the God of Christianity in this country is primarily perceived as pure benevolence. Pure benevolence. An overly indulgent and an easily forgetful grandfatherly figure. 
That is, you take the average, I'm using evangelical in the broadest sense of the word, broadest sense of the term. I'm restricting it here. Here we are, Texas, United States of America. I'm looking at a, the cultural phenomenon known as Christianity as it has been formed, practiced, and is articulated, has been for several decades, and is most certainly today. It is all about therapeutical survival. It is all about psychological wholeness. It is all about what God can do for me in this life to make sure I am happy, to make sure I am at peace, to make sure I am satisfied. All of a sudden, you throw what is quite literally a bomb into that equation. God is angry. There is no place for such a notion in much of what passes for Christianity in our day, and yet there you have it, as clear and as bright as the noonday sun, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The anger of God, we must unpack it. We must come to grips with it if we're going to be faithful with Scripture and if we're going to make certain we are worshiping and serving and following the God of Scripture and not the product of our own imagination. If we want to make sure I'm really worshiping God and not a God whom I have created in my own image that I am comfortable with, a God who is there when I need Him, a God who kind of winks at my sin, a God who pats me on my head and tells me it's all going to be well, do the best you can, a God who really doesn't make any demands upon me, but is this kind of grandfatherly figure who will give me a good feeling when I need it and is doing his best to make sure I get through life with the least trouble possible. And yes, at the end, there is this I don't know, place identified as heaven where I'll live forever. If that is our God, I'll be playing right from the outset. That is not the God of Scripture. It has nothing to do with the Bible. And oh, how we must make certain that the God we claim to believe in is the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. And so we need to wrestle with this concept. We need to engage our minds and worship with our minds and work through what Nahum means when he identifies God as an avenging, wrathful God. And so five points I want to make this morning, as clear as I possibly can. I pray the spirits of God's help for me, his illumination for you. Five things I want to make clear concerning the anger of God. Here is the first. It is perfect. It is perfect. Where do I get that from? The opening phrase in verse 2, the Lord, that's the great I am, Yahweh, right? The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. And so Nahum is describing who God is. He is describing the very essence of, or if you like, the very nature of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. This is, this is, 
This is about as difficult as it gets as a preacher, folks, to try to explain something like this. It is extremely difficult because for us, you and me, especially our young ones, that word jealous or jealousy is never ever used in a positive light in our vocabulary. We never use that word jealousy in a good sense. You use the word jealousy, we equate it with envy, we equate it with selfishness, we equate it with pride. All of a sudden, I open up God's word, and this is staring me straight in the face. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. How is that possible? Well, it should tell us that that word jealousy is far more nuanced than perhaps we realize. That there might be more to that word than we understand. We might acknowledge, therefore, that we have limited its sense according to our usage and made it something very negative. And so I'm going to walk us through this. This is the first point, the anger of the Lord, God's wrath is perfect. I'm going to walk us through this, and I want to affirm three truths. We'll see how long this takes us, and then points two, three, four, and five, we might not get there this morning. We'll see how it goes. If we can get our minds around this, we'll be doing very well, very well. God is a jealous God. Here's the first truth we must be clear on. God's jealousy is his being. Now that is a brain teaser. That's, that, that is okay, difficult to get. Work through it with me. God's jealousy is his being. He declares. The Lord declares to the people of Israel, Exodus 34, verse 14, the Lord whose name is Jealous. You haven't memorized that verse, have you? The Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The name of the Lord is the being of God. The name of the Lord is God's self-revelation to us. And so important that we understand that when we speak of God's jealousy, we are referring to his being. Now, here we go. And this is what I want us to get. I have been down this road with you in the past, but it has been a long time. There you sit, a human being, right? As a human being, you consist of parts. Have I lost anybody? I don't think so. You have a body and you have a soul. There are two parts. Your body has lots of parts. Thumb, fingers, nose, eyes, ears, feet, legs, limbs, everything. You get inside blood, tendons, bones, everything else. So we have a body that is made of, of tons of parts. And your soul is made up of parts. Memory. Reason. Uh, will. Affections conscience. And so all of these things together constitute humanity. And all of these parts have qualities, don't they? And so we just think of our hair. Some of us have blonde hair. Some of us have brown hair. Some of us have black hair. Some of us have white hair. Some of us have no hair. There's a quality of one of our parts. But it doesn't matter what the color of your hair is. 
It doesn't matter if you struggle with an absence of hair. It doesn't matter to our humanity. Our hair can be brown. Our hair could be long. Our hair could be fading and graying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make us human. None of these parts by themselves or none of these qualities are essential to our humanness. All right. Does that make good sense to you? Does it? All right. God isn't like us. He isn't at all like us. He is a pure, perfect spirit. He is not a compound being made up of lots of parts. He is a simple being, pure, indivisible spirit, which means what? When we speak of God's attributes, like power, love, jealousy, we aren't really speaking of his attributes because he doesn't have parts or qualities. What are we speaking of? His being. We are describing who he is in his essential self. God is power. God is wisdom. God is love. God is jealousy. We are describing his name. We are describing who he is, one simple, perfect, pure, indivisible spirit. We are not describing parts of him. We are not describing qualities. He is indivisible. Now, here's the second thing I want us to understand here. God's jealousy is the holy revulsion of his being. It is the holy revulsion of his being. Does God have emotions? Yes, he has emotions or affections, but they are not like ours. They are not like ours. Different in two fundamental ways. Our emotions are confined to periods of time. They're experiences. They have a start point and they have an end point. And so someone, I don't know, as we're walking out of here, stomps on my foot. And all of a sudden I feel a little what? Angry. It started at a specific moment of time. That individual realizes what he has done or she has done. They offer me a cupcake. Suddenly the anger has what? Ended. And now I'm what? Happy. It has started at a specific period of time, and it too will subside. Does that make sense to everyone? That's our experience, day in and day out, 24-7. We have emotions, but they are experiences confined to specific moments of time. God's emotions are not like that. They're not experiences. They don't have a beginning, nor do they have an end, because they are his being. We are not describing what God becomes. We are describing who God is. Secondly, our emotions are our responses to our circumstances, aren't they? We could just be here in neutral emotionally. Something happens and we respond emotionally. That's not God. He doesn't respond to circumstances outside of himself. He is who he is. 
we experience him, who he is, according to how we approach him. And so you've heard me say this before. The sun, now that the rain has cleared, right? We had a rainy, cloudy week. It's all gone now. And maybe some of us saw the sunrise this morning, right? Around noon, it will stand overhead, correct? And this evening around 6.30, 7 o'clock, the sun will set. Anybody disagree with me? The sun doesn't do any of those things. The sun doesn't rise. The sun doesn't set. The sun is fixed. We're moving. We describe the sun as we experience it, but we're actually not saying anything about the sun. We are describing our experience. So too when it comes to God. He is one pure, indivisible, unchangeable, that is immutable spirit. Yes, emotions, yes, but without beginning, without end. They constitute who he is in his essential being. His jealousy is the holy revulsion of his being. It isn't something that comes upon him in a moment of time. It isn't something that is provoked from outside of him. It is who he is. Third point is this. God's jealousy is the holy revulsion of his being against that which mars his glory. Now, you knew you weren't going to get through today's sermon without an illustration from the Winter Olympics. So here it is. They've just ended, I believe. Way back last week, uh, giant slalom, the Austrian an Austrian athlete wins, won the giant slalom. And uh, we can picture it. Maybe you saw it, the award ceremony. And there he was, and he received his gold medal, right? Rightly so. And uh, people are applauding him and uh, clapping. And then they played the Austrian national anthem. First place, his moment of glory. Okay, now imagine this scenario. Didn't happen, but imagine it did. 30 con- competitors in the grand slalom, the fella who finished 30th decides to show up at the award ceremony, jumps up on the podium beside the Austrian and says, I want half that medal. I want half that medal, gold medal. I want everybody to stop clapping for this man. And now you're all to applaud for me. Maestro, strike it up, play my national anthem. And we're going to have a celebration for me the 30th place competitor. What would we think of that man? Okay, something's wrong, right? But would we, would we heap praise upon him? Uh, there is a man trying to take, claim for himself what rightfully belongs to someone else. The Austrian is under no obligation to share his medal, to share his moment of glory, to share the national anthem, the celebration of his country with this individual who finished 30th. At that moment, listen carefully, the Austrian is jealous for his glory. Is there anything wrong with that? Now, In our use of the word, we still trip over it, we stumble over it, but as I have just described that scenario for you now, and I use that word jealousy, is there anything wrong with his jealousy in that moment? 
there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. Now think in terms of the Almighty. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory, I give to no other. My glory, I give to no other. Anything or anyone, therefore, that tries to take that glory, anyone or anything that corrupts or mars that glory, anyone or anything that usurps that glory, encounters whom? A God whose name is Jealous. And he is a wrathful and avenging God. And so this jealousy is his being, and his being is perfect. Therefore, God's anger, wrath, is what? It is perfect. Here's the second thing now I want us to understand. I'm going to go through numbers two, three, and four real quick. Here's number two. God's wrath is delayed. Verse three. The Lord is slow to anger, not he himself in terms of his experience, because he does not change in terms of his emotions. He is who he is. But the manifestation of his anger, the Lord actually acting on his anger, he is slow to anger. Nineveh testifies to this. Jonah, another prophet, prophesied against the city of Nineveh, probably about 120, 130 years before Nahum. And do you remember Jonah's problem, his perplexity? He didn't want to prophesy against the city of Nineveh. Why didn't he want to prophesy against the city of Nineveh? He was afraid they might do what? Repent. And he knew what? The Lord is slow to anger. And so he tried to run away. But Jonah eventually goes to Nineveh. The people of Nineveh do repent. And over a hundred years pass And now Nahum is on the scene, and now Nahum is declaring this impending destruction of Nineveh, and it comes to pass in the year 613, 612 BC. It certainly happens, but important for us to understand, this is not a calamity that God brought upon the Ninevites in a moment of time without any prior warning. For over a hundred years, that city was warned. For hundreds of years, Noah built the ark. What was he doing the whole time? He was preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness. Oh, hundreds of years, the Israelites were down in the land of Egypt, and the wrath of God was building and building against the Canaanites. But it did just not come in a moment of time. They had been warned For centuries, oh, the northern kingdom, overrun by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, overrun by the Babylonians. After years and decades and centuries of warning, he is slow to anger. Yet notice what we read in the rest of the verse, middle of it. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. As Paul writes in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. He is slow to anger for a purpose. And so many people struggle with that perplexing question. Why, are, why do so many terrible things happen? And an all-loving God and an all-powerful God does nothing, or at least little, evidently, to, to stop it. It's not the question. It's the wrong question. The right question is this. Why don't more terrible things happen? The question is this. Why did God even bother sparing Noah? Why didn't he just end it all right there at the flood? That's the question. And the answer to that question, he is slow to anger. And he is slow to anger, that is, show forth his judgment. Why? His kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. Here's the third thing I want us to get concerning God's anger. It is overwhelming. Look again at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then notice toward the end of verse 3, and this continues to the end of verse 5, there's this, this, power, this, this wonderful description of the power of God in and through and over creation. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. And so these manifestations of God's power in and through creation, it was evident at the time of Noah's flood. Oh, the judgment God brought through nature, the floodwaters. It was evident at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God raining down fire and brimstone upon those cities. It was evident at the time of the Exodus, the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt, culminating in the death of Pharaoh's armies as they crossed through the Red Sea and God brought the waters back, engulfing them. It was evident at the destruction, the overthrow of Jericho, when he shook the very foundations of the earth and brought down the walls of that city. Nahum here, I think, is recalling Israel's national history. He's going right back and he is reminding his audience as to how God has made evident his power, his overwhelming power through creation throughout the centuries in their own history. And his point that he wants to get across is simply this. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. It's terrible, folks. It is terrible. God judges and destroys with the utmost of ease. It is effortless to him. That might scandalize you. That might upset you. But that is the God of Scripture. That is the God who has revealed himself from Genesis to Revelation, that his power is unrivaled, his power is unstoppable, 
And when the flood waters, if you like, gathering behind that dam have reached their full, the dam breaks. Judgment pours forth, wrath and indignation. And by the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. It is overwhelming. Fourthly, it is good. It is perfect, it is delayed, it is overwhelming, and it is good. Why do I say that? Verse 7, the Lord is good. If the Lord is good, it means his jealousy is good. It means his anger is good. His wrath and indignation are good. That flies in the face of contemporary thinking. The contemporary man refuses to reconcile God, divine goodness and divine wrath. Contemporary, the modern man, think these two are irreconcilable. Nothing is further from the truth. God is angry precisely because he is good. I can illustrate this, however upsetting it might be. Excuse me if it is. The shooting in Florida the week before last. Does it make you angry? I hope it does. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Racism, so prevalent, is still in this country. Does it make you angry? I hope it does. That's a good thing. Social injustice, social inequity, does it upset you? I would think there was something wrong with you if it didn't. It's a good thing. Heinous crime, sexual abuse, do those, these things make you feel a little wrath, indignation? That is a good thing. Why is it any different when it comes to God now? That is, he looks out and he sees man's rebellion. And he sees man seeking to rob his glory. And he sees man seeking to live independently of him. He sees man constructing for himself all sorts of finite gods that he prostrates himself before every day of his life. If God weren't angry, he wouldn't be good. The fact that he is angry, the fact that he is jealous for his glory is a manifestation of his goodness. The judge who allows the criminal to go free isn't good, is he? The coach who turns a blind eye to abuse within his sphere of influence, that isn't a good thing. The police officer who neglects to uphold the law, that's not a good thing. Oh, a God who judges, my friend, is a very Good thing. It is a manifestation of his goodness. It is a manifestation of the fact that he does not, will not, cannot tolerate evil. There will be justice. Justice will be served. And therefore, his wrath is good. Now, here's the fifth point I want us to get in conclusion. God's wrath is escapable. Verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, eighth verse, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of 
the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. In the eighth verse, did you see the reference to adversaries, enemies? Go all the way back to verse 2, middle of the verse. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And so the poem begins with a reference to God's adversaries and enemies, and it ends with a reference, explicit reference, to God's adversaries and enemies. Who are these adversaries? Who are these enemies? In the context, it is the Ninevites. As we take the testimony of Scripture in its whole, we discover what? It is anyone who infringes upon, mars in any way, seeks to live in disregard to or complete neglect of what? God's glory. This is the stumbling block. The average individual thinks to himself, thinks to herself, I've never done anything truly heinous. I've never committed anything that would, would really be classified as a, as a, as a gross sin. I've never done anything to incur this kind of indignation, wrath. I'm not perfect. I would never claim to be perfect, but I'm not like all those other people. And surely when we think of God's wrath, it is reserved for a select few. But me, here I am minding my own business. Here I am just doing my best. Here I am getting through life, just staying under the radar, and I've never really hurt anyone. This talk of wrath, friend, it's, you're thinking to yourself, this is misplaced. This has nothing to do with me. And my response to you is simply this. You are, you are working with a biblically inaccurate understanding of sin. Here's the issue, my friend. Do you worship God like he deserves? Really? Do you obey God like he deserves? Come on now. Do you serve him like he deserves? Is there anything, just anything, big or small, in your life that really propels you, excites you, interests you, that you know really is, from looking on at your life, far more important to you than God is? Are you a victim to your emotions and your desires and your attitudes? Yes, friend, I, I may not be speaking to anyone this morning who has ever done anything, or I might very well be, but for, stick with me now. For that individual who's thinking to himself, wrath, that's just not for me. My friend, you've misunderstood the nature of sin each and every day, each and every moment of every day, you get up on that podium and you demand half the medal. You do. You demand that people applaud you. You demand that your national anthem is played. Each and every day in countless ways, we rob God of his glory. Who does that make God to us? A jealous God. How, is, how does a jealous God show forth his wrath and his indignation and his anger in judgment? And where is the only place we can find a refuge from that judgment? Oh, bring the book of Nahum. And we have to do this when we study it. 
bring the book of Nahum to the other side of the cross. And what do we see poured forth at Calvary's cross? God's wrath and anger and indignation. Oh, there the sin is on the Savior laid. Tis in his blood sin's debt is paid. Stern justice can demand no more. And mercy can dispense her store. Do you remember that little illustration? It's been perhaps years now. It's forest fire has blown through. I can't remember where. I don't remember the exact details. But a firefighter is walking through the wreckage of that forest fire. After the fact, the fire has been put out. And he comes upon a, a bird. I don't remember the kind of, kind of bird. And there it is, just a charcoal charcoal burned mess and he just kind of kicks it as he walks by and what scurries out from underneath that bird all the chicklings alive and well well the wrath of God it is a consuming all consuming fire have you found a refuge it's the Lord Jesus Christ isn't it the one who was burned up the one who was consumed the one who endured hell upon Calvary's cross, the one who felt the full fury of God's indignation and wrath and anger. My friend, have you taken refuge in him? Have you repented of your sin, which was the cause of all that? Have you turned from it and forsaken it? And do you rest fully and finally in an all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because in Christ and in Christ alone, God's wrath is escapable. I've said it I don't know how many times. I'll say it again. It's a terrible subject, isn't it? It's a frightful thought. And, you know, I can remember. Bear with me just a moment. I can remember. I can recall many years ago, far off place at different times, touching on the subject of hell in a sermon. And an individual, a man, was very put out with me afterwards. And it, it, his, his criticism summed up basically in this. You're just trying to frighten people with all that talk of hell. Young ones, some of the young ones here, I'm not trying to frighten you with this talk of the wrath of God. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to preach just as this, sort of hellfire and brimstone to shock people, to frighten people, to overwhelm people. I'm trying to portray for you accurately who God is, who he is. And my friend, accurately, who you are. And by the Spirit of God, I pray that seeing that, who God is, who you are. Yes, fear, frightened, scared, fine. But I pray far eclipsing that joy that this God has made a way of salvation. I trust rejoicing that there is an anchor in the midst of the storm. There is a shelter where we can hide. There is a refuge where we can escape such indignation. Oh, I pray such peace 
that you have found it. And you know what it really means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, I pray this morning we are not so much propelled or pushed by fear as much as we are drawn by love. That this God who should have judged us, this God who has no reason to save us, this God who is not in the least indebted to us, out of great indescribable love, has shown forth his compassion as well as his wrath at Calvary's cross and shown forth compassion for any sin-wearied soul who is prepared to look away from himself, look away from herself, and fix your gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the Savior of sinners. Hear this as I conclude. The most surprising thing in the world the most surprising thing in the world isn't God's anger. It isn't that God is a jealous God. That is not the most surprising thing in the world. The most surprising thing in the world is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't get what I deserve. There's a shocker, friends. If ever there's a shocker, there it is. That in Jesus Christ, I don't get what I deserve. Oh, I pray every, pray every man, woman, boy, and girl this day, firmly believing, taking hold in Jesus Christ, a refuge, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Our Heavenly Father, this is our prayer as we worship you this day and acknowledge who you are in your fullness. This is our prayer that you would be working in our midst and making the Lord Jesus ever more precious to us. May our hearts be thrilled by him as we consider what a great and mighty Savior he is. We do pray for unbelievers in our midst, that you would deal with them very personally today. We pray that you would show them the magnitude of their sin and the danger of their position before you. And we pray that having removed the scales from their eyes, that you would show them the loveliness of Christ and what it means to know sins forgiven in him. This we ask for your glory in Christ's most precious and worthy name. Amen.